Jogcast, an audio nuisance visible from space. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Samuel Lesk, Josh Hayes, Joel Williams, Emma Alexander and Michael Wright. The Jodcast, September 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh Hayes uh, and joining me in the studio today are Joel Williams and Emma Alexander. Hello, how are we? Hello, we are very well. Well, I am very well. How are you, Emma? I am, I am also very well, thank you. Not done this in a while, so yeah, this no, will be I, fun. I, I think it's, it's the first time in a while that any of us have been back in the, back in the presenting chairs. Um, in the show this time, uh, Emma is interviewing Fabio Antonini about nuclear clusters and supermassive black holes, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the September night sky in the North and Southern Hemisphere. But first, before all of that, here's Michael Wright with this month's news. Hello. An interesting variety of news this month, with Chandrayaan-2 splitting into its lander and orbiter, a synthetic catalogue of black holes, and an interesting 3D-printed binocular telescope. Firstly, India's Chandrayaan-2, developed by the Indian Space Research Organisation, ISRO, has split into its lander craft and orbiter. The mission, launched on 22nd of July, is India's attempt to land at the lunar south pole, an area of the moon not really explored by landers as of yet. It contains equipment for measuring elemental composition and abundance, as well as high-quality cameras for mapping, and equipment to detect subsurface water ice, among other things. The lander has been performing manoeuvres to prepare it for this, with a lunar orbit insertion on August 20th to get it to an orbit of 114 by 18,072 kilometres in a large ellipse. You see, the way it works is that the orbit was raised around... The way this craft was aimed to get towards the moon was to go into a higher Earth orbit, keep raising its orbit around the Earth before a manoeuvre which transitioned it from an Earth orbit to a lunar orbit, and then steadily lowering the altitude of the lunar orbit to bring it in close to the moon. So it could use its onboard propulsion system to reduce this orbit from the lunar orbit insertion, first going to 118 by 4,412 kilometres on August 21st, and 179 by 1,412 kilometres on August 28th, before 124 by 164 kilometres on August 30th. On the 1st of September, the final orbital manoeuvre was made, achieving an orbit of 119 by 127 kilometres. This worked well and meant that 13.15 International Standard Time on the 2nd of September, the lander could successfully be separated from the orbiter, where it will now attempt to gently fall in again, reducing its orbit and moving downwards, to make a soft landing on the moon on September the 7th. This is so far good news. While the difficult job of landing is still to come, this successful set of manoeuvres and detachment will allow the astronomers to breathe a sigh of relief. Everything has gone smoothly so far, and with the lander detached, the bare minimum is that the orbiter is well set for science. It would be incredibly unlucky now if something bad was to happen to it. According to the ISRO, all systems are healthy, and both craft are faring well. 
And if you'd like to see some footage of what has been done already, the ISRO website has some very good images of the lunar surface taken by their terrain mapping camera, which was of course taking images while this craft was in orbit. Also in the news was an interesting synthetic catalogue of black holes. Scientists Olejek, Berzinski, Bulik and Sabolevska have made a synthetic catalogue of black holes in the Milky Way. You see, at the moment, detecting black holes is very difficult. You've got gravitational wave detectors, which have found a few from things like mergers, and some are inferred from interactions with other objects, such as a binary companion. So when it comes to our next experiments in attempting to look for and find black holes in our galaxy, how do we get some idea of where to look and what we might find? Well, this paper is an attempt to use cosmological simulations and our knowledge of galaxies and stars to make a catalogue of the properties and numbers of black holes that we should expect in the Milky Way, roughly. There's been some research before getting figures such as estimates for the number of black holes that we expect in our galaxy and the number of those in binaries. The authors have made an open access database containing useful statistical properties of black holes based on their cosmological models. In this case, common configurations, numbers of black holes, masses, velocities, places of origin. For example, are these in the bulge of the Milky Way? What do we expect to see in the disk? What do we expect to see in the halo around that? And this could be a useful guide for missions which aim to detect black holes to search in more effective ways. Finally, an interesting 3D printed binocular telescope was developed by an amateur astronomer and astronomy science communicator called Robert Asimendi. It's an interesting telescope, so I'd like to talk about it. It's called the Analog Sky Drifter. Now, the idea of using 3D printing to allow kit-build scientific telescopes is by no means a new thing. A good example of this would be the PyCon, a design for a low-cost Newtonian-style telescope, but with the Raspberry Pi camera where the angled mirror would normally be. Another example might be the Ultrascope project, which was aimed at making a fully automated robotic observatory using a mix of 3D-printed and laser-cut parts, with an Arduino and shield to do the remote operation of the telescope. The Analog Sky Drifter is interesting in that it's a binocular telescope designed for ease of use. You see, binoculars are very useful when you're looking through them compared to a single eyepiece. The design is something that is made to allow easy and fast focusing, comparable to the way you'd use a regular set of binoculars. Generally, binocular telescopes are less commonly made than single eyepiece designs, and if you think about it, you can see the reason why. You've got far more lenses to design, align, and put in place, as well as multiple components that are repeated and mirrored because of the fact you're using binoculars. And if you're an amateur astronomer in the past, trying to fabricate these with woodwork or metalwork skills would be incredibly time-consuming because you have to design everything twice. But with the advent of things like 3D printing and computer-aided design, this is far less of a pain. Now, what I find interesting is the designer made this to have a telescope which worked with his astigmatism, which is a problem with the curvature of the cornea in your eye which 
impedes the ability to focus light onto your retina, leading to blurred vision. Being able to then put both eyes on the sky and have your brain's full ability dedicated to putting images together like it usually does when you're seeing things makes a binoscope useful if that's something you have or for a number of other vision defects or vision difficulties. It's also interesting because it shows the power now that amateur astronomers have to improve their ability to see the sky. Now it'll be interesting to see what other designs and ideas come out of giving those with the passion and time the tools they need to improve their work. This could be, if anything, just another small step along a very long and interesting road. But that's all for the news this week. Let's head back to the studio. Thanks for that, Michael. Now, Emma interviews Fabio Antonini about nuclear clusters and supermassive black holes. I'm here with Dr Fabio Antonini, who is an STFC Rutherford Fellow in the Astrophysics Group at the University of Surrey in the UK. Um, So Dr Antonini was a postdoctoral fellow previously at Northwestern University and has also been a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. Uh, Prior to that, he received a PhD in Astrophysical Sciences and Technologies at the Rochester Institute of Technology. So welcome to the Jobcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So it seems like you have a a wide uh, area of interest in your research, including galaxy formation and evolution, stellar dynamics near supermassive black holes, and also the computational side of things as well. So there's really lots to get into here. And I'm looking forward to the colloquium that you're giving here at JVCA this afternoon, titled Nuclear Clusters and Supermassive Black Holes. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about this area of your research, please? So my research focuses mostly on uh, um, making predictions for the gravitational wave sources that instruments like uh, LIGO uh, have detected few last uh, years and will also detect in the, in the future. And uh, so the main question, the big question is, well, I should say one of the fundamental questions for this type of research is how uh, you actually produce in the universe these uh, gravitational wave sources how they are forming nature. And um, there is a number of uh, possibilities that have been proposed. So what I, uh, what I look at is the possibility that uh, these sources could form in a dense uh, stellar environment, like, for example, the clusters uh, of stars that are observed at the center of, of galaxies. And in fact, most nearby galaxies, uh, including our own galaxy, host a very dense and massive star cluster at their center, which are... Uh, an environment where the gravitational wave sources, again, that have been detected by LIGO can can form. So how has your research been impacted by uh, the the actual detection of these gravitational waves by LIGO? Because it was only a couple of years uh, ago that that actually happened. So what was the difference been in your research before and after those predictions came true? Well, that's a good question. So before, we didn't really know whether these uh, sources actually this... Um, so let's say first what LIGO actually has detected. So LIGO has detected the merger of uh, two black holes uh, spiraling uh, uh, towards each other and merging with each other. Um, this was uh, 10 uh, binary black hole mergers plus one uh, neutron star binary merger. So I focus mostly on the formation of binary black holes. Uh, and before the LIGO detection, we didn't really know that these sources actually exist. So my my work was mostly making uh, theoretical predictions, and these detections have really changed the field because now uh, these predictions can be actually tested by uh, by the detections. 
And so my models, before the deductions, were making some predictions, for example, for the masses, for the distance of these sources, where we should observe them, how often we should observe them. And now we actually can test these predictions. We only have 10 detections, but eventually we will collect, uh, LIGO will collect hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of binary black hole merger signals. And so this will really help to, to test the models that I, I put forward uh, even before these detections were made. So what is it that's particularly interesting about black hole binaries? Is it um, them as uh, objects in themselves or is it, uh, for example, what they can tell us about other areas of astrophysics and, and physics? Yeah, so the interest is uh, mostly astrophysical. So the origin of uh, uh, black holes uh, is from uh, the death of massive stars. So they form from the collapse of very massive stars with masses larger than uh, approximately 20 times the mass of the Sun. So the evolution of these stars is often uh, affected by their companions. Sometimes, well, most of the times, actually, that you see uh, massive stars, so you often you most of the time find that they have companions. And if they have companions uh, and both produce black holes, then you end up with a binary black hole. And uh, whether these black holes merge or not actually tells you something about the, the evolution prior to the, uh, the formation of the black holes. And so you can learn, for example, about the uh, physical processes that lead to the formation of the black holes and the, also the physical process that take place during the evolution of their uh, stellar progenitors. And uh, in terms of the star clusters that are uh, the main focus of my research, it also tells you about the it's a unique way, actually, to probe the compact object populations in uh, in these systems that otherwise are inaccessible by other means. Uh, also, by by this, you you can also infer something about the the formation and evolution of these clusters. And uh, this is important because, as from observations, we also know that properties of these clusters uh, relate actually to the properties of the galaxies they inhabit. And these clusters also contain supermassive black holes. So understanding how the smaller black holes uh, merge in these clusters might shed some light on uh, the evolution of, of, these, of these clusters, but also maybe on the evolution and formation of supermassive black holes and also uh, the galaxies they, they inhabit. How do you go about uh, tackling the, the theoretical aspects of this work? So you, you mentioned that you do theoretical work in this. Uh, does it involve you know, uh, computer simulations, uh, a lot of number crunching? Uh, what exactly goes into this, this research? Most of the research is done with uh, computational simulations, with uh, numerical simulations, mostly on uh, supercomputers. Uh, and uh, because in this case, you you want to to understand the evolution of uh, from hundred thousand to uh, millions of stars, and you want to resolve the the single gravitational interactions between the single stars. Uh, and also because relativistic corrections to the motion become important. Of course, you want to resolve, for example, the merger of the black holes where uh, relativity is important. You, you want to simulate this cluster very efficiently, but also very uh, precisely, uh, including all the real and the relevant physics that, uh, that you have to. And so for doing this, we, uh, we use GPUs, graphic processing units, which are often also used for, uh, for video games. It's the same uh, kind of hardware that uh, you use for your, your PlayStation or uh, your Xbox. Uh, and we take advantage of the acceleration provided by this hardware to run our uh, simulations and understand and to understand the long-term evolution of uh, these systems, which otherwise would be impossible to model, I would say. And uh, as, as I mentioned before, now, now that we've got the, the LIGO gravitational wave inputs, is that now feeding back into your simulations and allowing you to fine-tune them? I wouldn't say so. Oh. I, 
I mean, I would say that, uh, so now that we have observations, there are new puzzles arising from these observations. And so uh, my simulations might be able to uh, address some of these, uh, uh, these questions that, that come from, the, from observations. So, for example, the, the first uh, LIGO detections are detections of black holes that have uh, large masses. These are uh, 30 times the mass of the sun. And uh, some of the theoretical models uh, have an issue in reproducing this, uh, this large mass. In this sense, the detections of these sources and the, having uh, the statistical distribution for the physical properties of these sources is important because my models could explain some of these, uh, these properties, right? And where would you like to see this research going into the future? Uh, well, in the, the future is uh, is very bright, so the LIGO will uh, keep observing uh, uh, in the coming years and uh, uh, will uh, detect uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of uh, uh, gravitational wave sources, which again uh, will be I will be able to uh, compare to the predictions to, uh, from my models, which uh, uh, will provide insights on these models. But it's bright also because there will be new uh, new detectors. Uh, there will be the laser interferometer space antenna. Uh, this is uh, the same concept as LIGO, but now in space. So there will be lasers in space detecting gravitational waves. And uh, these times uh, the, uh, they will be detecting gravitational waves coming from uh, not longer stellar black holes like, uh, like LIGO. So black holes form from the evolution of massive stars, but LISA will detect the gravitational waves from uh, the merger of supermassive black holes. So the black holes that we find uh, at the center of most nearby uh, nearby galaxies. I've just realised we, we have talked about um, gravitational waves and LIGO before on the Jodcast, uh, but just to give our listeners maybe a bit of a reminder if they're still scratching their heads thinking, oh, where, where have I heard all this before? Um, could you just give a little bit of an overview as to how, for example, LIGO detects uh, gravitational waves? Okay, so there are many details that go into how the gravitational uh, waves have been detected by LIGO, but the concept, the idea behind LIGO is actually quite simple. Uh, LIGO is a Michelson interferometer. You uh, you start with a laser beam. The laser beam is split into uh, perpendicular laser beams that go into tubes, which are four kilometers each. Uh, they have to be precisely the same the same length. At the end of the uh, of the tubes, the beam is bounces back of uh, uh, of reflecting mirror. And uh, at the uh, detector, the beams uh, are added together. So this, uh, in, during this process, they uh, they cancel each other. So in a normal situation, you don't have any any signal coming uh, because the beams cancel each other uh, at the detector. Now, as a gravitational wave passes through the instrument through through LIGO, this changes the length of the of the tubes and uh, um, and changes also the interference pattern of the uh, of the laser beams. And so at this point, uh, at the detector, you will detect some light, you will detect a signal, and you will detect uh, gravitational waves. Just to go back to what you've talked about for uh, your colloquium this afternoon, you mentioned something called the final parsec problem, which sounds very interesting. Uh, it's a very grand name. Uh, yes. what, what, what is that problem and, and how do you go about solving it? Yeah, so this problem has to do with uh, the merger of uh, uh, supermassive black holes and therefore is relevant with for uh, uh, for LISA, so the space mission that will be launched in 2030s. So it is really, uh, the problem is how to make two supermassive black holes merge in less than a Hubble time. So a Hubble time is the, the, the Hubble age time of... is the age of the yeah. universe. So uh, you want these mergers to happen in less than a Hubble time, otherwise they would not be, uh, of course, observable. 
this is a problem that goes back to the to the 80s and uh, um, it's a uh, really a prediction of theoretical and numerical uh, uh, numerical models which show that uh, that during the merger of two galaxies uh, the supermassive black holes contained initially in the uh, at the centers of uh, of these two galaxies will not be able to merge in uh, a time which is short enough for uh, for them to be detected by uh, by us and uh, so my work has focused on also on this uh, on this topic and uh, more recently we have uh, uh, found a quite natural solution to the uh, to the final parsec problem and so now we think that actually this is no longer a problem and the supermassive black hole binaries are able to merge uh, in any uh, galaxy merger remnant in less than a humble time which is good news for Lisa. Yes, good. You, you always want things to happen within the age of the universe, as you said. Um, one, one thing that caught my eye when I was uh, look, looking at your areas of research is that you also say that you're interested in the dynamics of exoplanet systems, which seems like a, a very different field from what we've been talking about previously. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your interest there? Yes, I mean, it is. Yeah, you're right. It is different, but... Uh, is still uh, gravitational interactions between uh, you know uh, n bodies so in this sense it is not that different from what i'm uh, usually doing uh, with my research and uh, in this case i i'm looking at the formation of hot jupiters these are um, when we uh, started to detect planets the the first detections were detections of uh, very uh, massive and gaseous planets like uh, like jupiter but uh, uh, instead of being like many many AUs away from from the sun, these Jupiters were found very close to the to their uh, to their host star, uh, and so this represents uh, really a puzzle uh, because we don't know how to form uh, such big planets at such a short distance from the from the star, and so my uh, my research focuses on uh, on this topic and how to form hot Jupiters in this uh, in these systems. So it's a case of applying very similar techniques to your other work, but just in a slightly different astrophysical context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is a very similar uh, numerical framework, uh, but applied to to another uh, and different astrophysical uh, environment. Um, I'll just ask in general: uh, Is there anything else that you're working on at the moment, or that you have worked on previously? Uh, we're working on uh, something very exciting right now that I, I think it is very exciting, which is the evolution of massive stars in multiple systems. Um, so observations uh, uh, of uh, massive stars, uh, this is again a result from observations, show that uh, most of massive stars, uh, which again are the progenitors of the uh, stellar black holes or neutron stars that we uh, observe with LIGO, uh, are not single. Uh, but they are in binaries or even in higher multiplicity systems, so they have often companions. And, and so what we are finding is that the, in, that the presence of these uh, um, uh, companions really changes in important ways the uh, evolution of the, of the stars, and this wasn't taken into account, uh, uh, account before. And now we're investigating how uh, this process can affect the evolution of massive stars and maybe uh, how the interaction between uh, uh, an inner uh, black hole binary and um, external companions can lead to the formation of uh, black hole mergers. And, of course, whether this can explain at least a fraction of the LIGO sources. So is this what you're going to be working on going into the future then? Yeah. This is uh, uh, something I will uh, I have already worked on and uh, uh, results are very encouraging, but I, I will keep working on it in the coming years for sure. Uh, do you do anything relating to the black hole in, in the centre of our galaxy? 
Yes, it's actually the topic of my PhD thesis, so you can yeah. ask me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, what did you do for your PhD on, on the uh, oh, central okay. platform? So, um, uh, so in, at the center of our galaxy, there is a, um, a very massive cluster of stars. This is uh, much more massive than uh, all the other clusters that we, we see in our galaxy, like, for example, globular or open clusters. The mass of this cluster is 10 million solar masses, so there are approximately 10 million stars in this cluster. And to give you an, ide an idea of the densities in this cluster, um, the, de the closest star to the Sun, uh, Proxima Centauri, is about one parsec from, from the Sun. In the same distance uh, from the center of the galaxy to one parsec, there are uh, approximately one million, uh, one million stars. So this means that uh, in this environment, dynamical interactions, gravitational interactions between stars and black holes are uh, very important. Uh, another important ingredient in the, is that in the center of our galaxy, galaxy there is a supermassive, uh, supermassive black hole. And uh, um, in fact, observations of uh, the galactic center have shown uh, that there is approximately 20 uh, young stars. Uh, these are called S-stars. They are uh, B-type main sequence stars, so they're very young, approximately from 10 to 100 mega years old, uh, so much younger than our than our sun. And uh, uh, their orbital periods around the galactic center are only uh, from a few tens of years to hundreds of years. So um, uh, groups from two groups, one from the UCLA and one from uh, the Max Planck Institute in uh, Garching, have tracked the orbits of these stars over. Uh, the last 20 years, uh, and the study of these orbits has actually provided with, uh, uh, with a very strong empirical evidence for the presence of a black hole at the center of uh, uh, our galaxy, and I would say that uh, uh, actually this is the strongest uh, evidence for the existence of, of black holes in the universe. And, uh, and so my, uh, my work was uh, aimed to understand how the supermassive black holes affect the long-term evolution of the stars uh, and black holes in the galactic center through uh, gravitational interactions. Brilliant. Well, I think I'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining us again on the Jodcast. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I look forward to your colloquium this afternoon. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for that, Emma. Um, so now we come on to my favourite part of the podcast because it's the part where we get to chat and mess around. Um, but uh, the odds and ends. Um, so we can start, I think, this week with, or this episode, with Emma. Sure. So what have you got for us? Um, we've got some space drama. Ooh. Got, got a bit of space gossip. <clears throat> or just, I don't know. It doesn't have to be gossip, but here we go. Spossip. Spossip. That is the worst word I've ever heard. Spossip. Thanks, thanks for that, Josh. Spossip. Anyway, uh, the European Space Agency um, has said that it has had to make an emergency manoeuvre of one of its Earth science satellites in order to avoid a potential collision with a SpaceX Starlink satellite. The ESA Operations Twitter account documented its collision avoidance manoeuvre, which happened on the 2nd of September. Uh, it involved ESA's Aeolus satellite, uh, which is the first satellite mission to acquire profiles of the Earth wind on a global scale. Uh, it's got a single instrument, a Doppler wind lidar, uh, which apparently can probe the lowest 30 kilometres of our atmosphere. So really important stuff for weather monitoring. So it's not something you'd want to collide with and take out. 
But it turned out there was the possibility of that happening with one of SpaceX's Starlink satellites, uh, which we have discussed on the Jodcast before, I think back in June, after they'd first launched. So um, Emma, can you just remind us what uh, Starlink is? Yeah, so there are so-called mega constellation of satellites um, launched earlier this year um, by Elon Musk's private space company, SpaceX. So initially 60 were launched, um, but there are plans of deploying up to 12,000 with the aim of providing a new space-based internet communication system. So seems like it's got some kind of good, honest intentions, but many astronomers have raised concerns about their impact on optical and radio astronomy uh, due to their sheer number and brightness and and the effects that they're going to have on optical and radio astronomy. Um, And a key part of this is that unlike most satellites, they can uh, autonomously change their orbits, uh, meaning that their motion is is hard to predict and and compensate for in your observations. Okay, so Aeolus was on... Uh, a known trajectory is what we're saying and then SpaceX satellite was had, had it changed trajectory or was there a what 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 exactly was going on with yeah, so it, at first it wasn't clear. So a lot of this played out over Twitter. Um, and at first it... it Twitter, it, that well-known place for, you know, talking about your satellite. I mean, trajectories. hey, it's where, it's where you first started talking about, about it. And it's where a lot of the discussion took place. Um, so yeah, the, the initially it was a bit suspicious because um, this all happened at an orbit of uh, 320 kilometres, um, which is lower than the usual Starlink orbit. So that was initially a bit suspicious. You know, is this... Um, satellite defunct have they lost control of it um, but it turns out it, it could have been purposely lowered um, to that altitude to test low altitude satellite controllability and uh, calculations suggested that Aeolus would have passed within 10 kilometers of, of Starlink um, Starlink 44 which was the, this satellite uh, which 10 kilometers does it seems quite a well, long way away but in terms of satellite distances that's that's very very close yeah it's it's not a the, the error bar on that is is compar- comparable. You don't want to be messing around with it. Was the I, I think because I saw I saw some of this. So um, were, they were saying that the the odds of collision were about one in ten, one in a thousand. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a threshold of one in ten thousand um, that they say is a is a safe collision risk level. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was ten times that um, calculated to be to be one in one in a thousand. Um, so yeah, ten times the threshold for an avoidance uh, maneuver. Okay, so and and this definitely was a deliberate like they were they were it was it definitely this this test because I I, I saw something similar that was theorising that it was a satellite that had lost they it had failed in its original launch and it was de- being deorbited. And so there was concern that actually SpaceX themselves didn't actually have any control over where the satellite was going. That is that is one of the theories. Um, and it, it could have been that. It could have been that it was a sort of a controlled test of, of, of a lower altitude. So have SpaceX not confirmed? They the, the only communication that there's been from SpaceX on this so far was they sent a very short email to the European Space Agency, apparently, um, to, to let them know um, that they had no intention of moving their Starlink satellite, basically implying that it would have to be ESA that moved their satellite if they wanted, if they wanted to do that. Oh, good. So we've got a private company who are doing whatever they want in space now telling international space agencies what to do. Well, obviously we don't know the full details of this. It's all still very speculative at the time of recording. Um, it, it is unusual 
some people have thought that uh, the European Space Agency have, have made this into a thing and have tweeted to announce this avoidance manoeuvre uh, because they also say that they performed 28 collision avoidance manoeuvres last year, uh, mostly to avoid defunct satellites that, that are out of control, you know, just the general space junk that we have orbiting the Earth. Um, so it's a bit, don't quite know why this one in particular has been singled out. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it definitely raises a lot of these questions. You know, as we put more and more satellites up for both scientific and commercial purposes, you know, what what is the protocol in these situations? And who gets to decide the rules? Because, mm. no, you know, ideally no one country or organisation owns space. Yes. And I think, so my, my point of view of that is that of those two agents, of, the, of those two organizations, ESA are far more, well, are, are in a far better position to be the ones that are inputting on those rules because they're not a, they're, they're not a private company whose only drive is ultimately for profit. Like that's, I, 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 I there's something about having a private company all over the lower low earth orbit refusing to move and just because they've got so many satellites are almost they always seem to be willing to crash their satellites because they have so many and they're putting up so many that losing one is actually not the biggest deal for them so they're able to, they're able to bully I mean, it, it, it could be, as, as you suggested, Josh, that it, it was a satellite yeah. that they had lost control of, and they d- don't necessarily want to admit that, so may- maybe that's where this has come from. Again, this is all, all speculation. Yeah, no, it, it, it is all speculation. Um, so I think that the one of the main things that this actually highlights as an issue is the behaviour of astronomers as a community. So... Listeners may or may not be aware about the controversy surround um, the controversy in Hawaii at the moment surrounding the TMT, um, thirty meter thir- telescope. The thirty meter telescope, um, which is a telescope that is due to be built on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, and I'm going to ch- I'm choosing my words very carefully here, and if I if I say something wrong, I apologise. Um, but this uh, so Mauna Kea is. To my understanding, it's a, it's sacred land to Hawaiian natives. And there, there are, there are ongoing protests about whether or not, uh, the TMT should be built there at all. Um, and so there are, there are people who are blocking construction and who are like sort of generally making it so that the telescope can't be built. And the reaction from some of the astrono- astronomical community has been to say, well, you're in the way of progress, and you're kind of like you. The, the the telescope must be built, and it must be built here. And the way that that kind of behaves is sort of as if astronomers own the sky, um, and that we have the absolute divine right to say no. We must build here. We must have access to the sky at all times. And I think the thing with sky, Starlink is that. It has this sort of noble cause behind it of internet for all, as Emma said. Um, but the, it's perhaps not being, the astronomer's reaction to it is to say, no, you're in our sky. Um, when actually what we should be saying is, no, we share this sky with you. Um, can we enter a dialogue? 
but it's 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 two way, right? So we need to, as a community, accept that things like Starlink will eventually go up. Like whether or not it's now, whether or not it's later, that will happen. But we and we need to work with these people. But similarly, they need to work with us. And I think that's the that's the thing that upsets me most about this story is that given the opportunity to say, hey, sorry, we've messed up here. Um, can you move your satellite? Which is like, you know, a normal human way to word the we're not moving our satellite rather than we're not moving our satellite. Given that opportunity, SpaceX didn't take it. And that's, that's a problem for me. Um, and I think it's, it's all, all parties in this, in this whole debate need to actually realize that no, this is a shared space. Um, and we need to actually take into account everybody's feelings, everybody's vested interests, everybody's, uh, the things that everybody stands to gain from it and get to a point where we can all actually work together. Okay. Um, so I hijacked the end of that, Anna. Sorry. It's, it's, um, it's fine. I think it, I think the, these discussions are really important to have and it, we are getting to the point where, yeah, with the satellites, we are filling the sky of satellites and we, we need to put policies in place. We need to have these discussions now to establish protocols and, and hopefully move forward from there and move forward to a, a productive future full of lovely scientific things. And we're all happy together and there's no politics involved whatsoever. What a wonderful positive note to end on the concept yes. of no politics. Wouldn't that be lovely? <clears throat> um, Joel, have you got anything equally cheery for us? Yes. Oh, uh, that I was not say... the answer I was expecting. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's uh, cheery. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Um, but that's because I have a, uh, a particular, uh, I like things that are space exploration y. Let's put it that way. Um, so NASA, this is still about satellites, interestingly enough. Uh, but NASA, uh, on August 23rd confirmed that, uh, their deep space atomic clock that they launched in June 2019 has successfully activated. Now, the aim of this deep space atomic clock is to test, uh, the technology for autonomous deep space travel. So the idea with this atomic clock is it gives you really good timings, um, and allows you to measure distances really well in space because you bounce a signal from where your atomic clock is to the earth and back and use the time it takes for that signal to travel there and back to measure the distance you are from the earth and what this allows you to do is rather than using uh, the lengthy normal process of communicating with a station back on earth them them working out what the time is there working out what the time is on the spacecraft you've sent and then communicating that information in order to allow the spacecraft to establish where it is in the solar system this would allow you to do it in a much quicker and much more autonomous way. So this is with the aim of at some point spend sending some deep space autonomous mission out into the solar system that uh, would be able to much more easily navigate itself through the solar system without having to have as much human control and interaction. So by having a clock on board the spacecraft itself that we are confident is accurate you're then able to pre-program um, routines or whatever, like manoeuvres. Yes. So so that you don't have to sort of keep checking. Yeah, the idea is that the spacecraft can actually 
figure out where it is on its own. Current autonomous spacecraft usually get told where they are by some home base or home home station. Okay. Um, so NASA communicates to the spacecraft where it is right now, whereas it, it would know where it was itself and would be able to uh, plan its own route much better. So you say that most uh, satellites currently... They, Not satellites, they, but uh, so probe spacecraft, deep space kind of spacecraft. Um, so my... The, the alternative to that, I think, is using star charts and sort of mapping from way, the positions of stars, correct? Yes. Yeah, but that's much more complicated and you have to also have correctly predict where the positions of stars will be in the future. And I remember that was a pro- that was a problem for the Rosetta spacecraft um, because as it was getting closer into the comet it was visiting, all the all the dust uh, that was around it looked just like stars, and it confused Rosetta's uh, navigation systems. If I remember mm. rightly, don't quote me on that. So the potential I see is that you don't have to necessarily just bounce this signal off Earth, right? You can bounce it off any object to work out your distance to that object and therefore also avoid collisions with, say, uh, un- unknown asteroids. Um, so it's the, sig- the, the signal is being, bound- is being sent from the probe. So the signal, yeah, it's being so- sent from the atomic clock. Uh, or the probe itself, and then it uses the atomic clock to determine how long it took to send and receive said signal. So, so it's it's space sonar. Yeah, it's basically space sonar. It's very simple. Um, it's a very simple idea. It's just it requires such an accurate clock to work, and that's why you need something like an atomic clock, which has a really high precision and um, generally won't lose time, like say a pendulum clock. It wouldn't work in space because a pendulum clock requires a gravitational gravity to yeah. yeah. Josh was gesturing at me because I was going to say something, but then I was just going to say space sonar, sponar, which w- would not have been a particularly great. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why would you do this? Spossib. <laughs> I had a qu- I had an actual question, um, and sponar has completely thrown me. Sponar has thrown. Are you? Uh, I'll stop this. Um, so the. Satellite that NASA are testing it on is this in low Earth orbit at the moment, or like so? Where where is it? Oh, that is a good question. Like, because I presume they've not like thrown it away. No, <laughs> it is in orbit, is what this article says. What? Okay, presumably around Earth. Yeah, it's in orbit around Earth. I don't know if it's in low Earth orbit. I think the idea is to send it. Is to sending and uh, send it further and further away, so increase the uh, radius of its orbit, okay. just to test the technology, see if it continues to work yeah. well and precisely as it gets further away from the Earth, okay. with the aid of, you know, with the aim of testing the technology in deep space. Do we know how long they're expecting this to take be- until we see it deployed on? future missions? Well, I think with all pathfinding missions like this, you you don't really have an idea in mind as to, as to whether you will be able to even deploy it. You, you need to test the technology and see whether it's actually something useful uh, or whether actually it was a good idea that actually isn't practically that helpful. So if it turns out to be practically useful, then uh, the, the other thing we don't know about the timing is what deep space missions, autonomous deep space missions, NASA has lined up or even funded in the... in this sounds like it would be a very far future um, 
technology that would be used in in much late you know deep space missions yeah. to come yeah. but those deep space missions are very much unfunded right you we don't you know the nasa's funding is done is they budget yearly they they don't know what's coming in maybe 10 20 years time they don't know what their budget size is in say 10 20 years time that's very dependent on uh what the federal government says their budget is allowed to be for example and so that was very carefully put well done um, <laughs> um cool have you got anything any any final atomic minutia to add to um if you're interested in the choice of atom oh yes no um, I've, I've i've got um, they are I've using got a sweepstake on this it is a really i've i've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've got a fantasy uh fantasy league going with fantasy uh, league with the periodic with, table yeah with the periodic table um as to whether or not uh particular elements are used for different things i'm i'm going for is it rubidium or I'll, cesium i'll go now i'm going you take rubidium okay. i'll take cesium it's a mercury ion atomic oh. clock, unfortunately, okay. which was my pick on the sweepstake. Oh, it well. wasn't. <laughs> we don't have a sweepstake. Well, Jodcast does not encourage gambling. Okay, can you give me my tenner back then? Oh, yes. <laughs> I slip under the table. That's... <laughs> okay. That's me. That's you. You're That's done. Um, Moving on. Brilliant. Um, so, finally... Um, in what Joel maintains is a tradition of whenever the two of us are on, I'm going to talk about Star Trek without ever really having watched any of the like traditional Star Trek things. Um, so <laughs> why do you do this? Um, because I like to I, I like to watch you twitch. Um, the um, so there is in Star Trek and quite often with any sci- space sci-fi based. Um, program there's there's often like the ability to scan for life so the, these you're you're in orbit around a planet and someone says is there any are there any life forms on the planet like how do we do that like in in my head that was always kind of like an infrared camera hmm. like and you just sort of look for heat signatures and then i kind of thought about that a little bit more and was like oh actually but what if everything's lizards um like it at, at that at that point so it's it's not just a life scanner it's an intelligent life scanner well so no um it's 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 a life scanner um and the so i i preface all of this with it's a new technology um and new thoughts that have come about that might actually be how the sci-fi pointed a at a planet does this have life on it um how these technologies might come about so um to start with um i need to sort of talk about what it is we look for on planets so for if we're looking for life normally well right now we kind of look for what we call biosignatures so things like oxygen things like water things like methane so these are all um well a lot of these are what we call organic molecules uh, and we call them that because they are required for life as we understand it so all life on earth requires water um, but they can exist without it. So you can have water naturally forming, you can have methane naturally forming, oxygen can can exist without biology. Um, and so actually using those molecules to say there is life on that planet isn't accurate. And on the flip side as well, how sure are we 
that life needs water, that life needs oxygen. Are we very Earth-centric in, in this? Are we thinking, well, we've got the sample size of one, we know that life needs X, Y, Z here on Earth, therefore we assume we must need it elsewhere in space as well? Yeah, it's it's a fair point. Um, the the sort of astrobiology counter-argument to that is, well, we've got to start somewhere. Um, like, we, we have no evidence for life of any other kind, and there's even the question of, like, would we know that we were looking at it? So we kind of have to work with what we know. Um, and what we know is that there is a, a way to look at the molecules that are actually used by life um, and, bi- and biological processes and see how they interact with light. So there is a, there's a type of polarization uh, called circular polarization, which is if you look at if you look at some light, it's either left or right-handed circularly polarised. Um, and we have ways of measuring whether or not some light is left or right or a mixture of the two and in what proportions they are. We, we can do that. Joel is nodding because this is basically what he does with the CMB, if I, in a nutshell. Um, but the there are then, to move away from astronomy very quickly and look at chemistry, if you put together a load of atoms into a molecule... Um, some of those have what's known as chirality, which is where they're the exact, they're made up of the exact same atom. So the, the structure and is the same, sorry, the components are the same, but the structure is mirrored. So you have what are then known as left and right handed molecules. So there's no way to rotate one to put it on the other. You have to, you would have to reflect it in a mirror. Um, and naturally, you get left and right-handed versions of the same molecule appearing at the same frequencies, the same the same amounts. Um, but biology screws this up. Um, so all of the amino acids in humans and most mammals and most uh, most living things are left-handed, um, and so any amino acids that you see are far far more likely to be left-handed because it's just favoured. Uh, by our biology. Chiral molecules can, uh, you, you can measure their, um, abundance by looking at how much circularly polarized light you have. So a left-handed molecule produces left-handed light and a right-handed molecule produces right-handed light. And so if you were to look at the light coming from a, um, being reflected by a planet or or, or a source, but being reflected by something, by looking at the amount of circularly polarized light you have, you can tell whether or not it's organic. Um, and so there, there's a, a paper that came out looking at this, um, and the the people that did it, they ca- they came up with it. They tested it in a lab. They got some uh, ivy leaves and sort of like looked at the light that was being reflected by them and, and measured the amount of circularly polarized light and found that there was a bias towards left-handed. Um, and then that bias kind of decayed as the leaves decayed. And so they went onto the roof of their building. And there was a nearby sports field that they pointed their scanner at and saw absolutely nothing. Um, so this is in the Netherlands. And um, they they kind of watched it for about three days. And then eventually someone went, Hang, should we just go and have a look? And it turned out that it was one of the few sports pitches in the Netherlands that uses artificial grass. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh my days. Yeah, but, and, and three days, and they didn't think to go check. I, I, 
I, I don't know the exact okay. time scales involved. Okay. Um, I don't but, know the episode of Star Trek. It's, Af- it's Astro Turf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Astro Um But they... <laughs> Um, but they then tried this on a forest that was a few miles away instead and just immediately saw the signals. Mm. So they're, they're, they're working now on a, designing an instrument for the ISS, um, to try and map the circular polarization, um, that they see on Earth to try and work out what you might then actually see if you were looking, um, at Earth from a much, fur- much further away and how do all those signals blend together. Um, so that you would then be able to try and look at an individual exoplanet, um, and look at the circularly polarized light coming from that. It seems like quite a big jump to go from looking at a forest a few miles away to looking at an entire planet light years away. Oh, yes. <laughs> there is also surely, so the concern would be, are there things that would sit in between us and the exoplanet that would also generate circular polarizations? Yes, but you can check that by looking at the sort the host star, right? So the light from the host star would oh, sure. would, would go through that. the same okay. medium. So you can you can retract you can you can remove all of that. So you would be able to, after a bunch of data processing, just get down to the raw signal from light being reflected from the host star by the planet, and then seeing the circular polarization of that light. The problem there. As Emma raised, is um, it's a, it's a heck of a jump. Yeah. Um, so the amount of light being reflected by the exoplanet is is tiny. It's about ten billion times fainter than the host star. Um, so realistically, is this only going to be on planets that we can already directly image? Um, so no, um, it won't just be on planets that we can already di- directly image. Um, because by the time, and it's similar to Joel's, um, point of like these blue skies things, we have no idea when we're actually going to start using them. Um, the kind of the problem with directly imaging exoplanets is that you've got to be really, really far away. And those one, those planets are generally not in the habitable zone. So they're not actually desirable targets for this technology anyway. Um, so there are thoughts that Louvois, which is the um, Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, um, which is a, an enormous space-based telescope, um, which is supposed... Um, it's still a concept, but the proposal has a mirror diameter six times wider than the one the Hubble Space Telescope. So we'd be able to do quite a lot with it. Um, and um, something like that, which would probably launch in, say, the mid-2030s, um, would be something that we could do with, uh, do exoplanet uh, circular polarised light exploration with. Alternatively, we could look closer to home. Um, so we actually talk about um, whether or not uh, extraterrestrial life exists elsewhere in the solar system. So take Europa or Enceladus, moons. Um, if you actually took one of these detectors and aimed it at these moons, would we see circularly polarized light from them? Um, and would there be any other potential source for it? But if we saw them, um, it wouldn't be a definitive detection, but it would definitely um, make it a, improve the case for sending rovers and probes to those planets to actually 
specifically look for life and not just be like, what's here? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a really cool, uh, development. Um, and I should probably name the person behind it. I have it written down. Um, yeah, uh, Franz Snick, who is an astronomer at Leiden in the Netherlands, uh, and a co-author. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a group of, uh, researchers based in the Netherlands, um, who have done this. That's really interesting. So we're not miles and miles away from, uh, being able to point telescopes at near, relatively nearby objects and saying it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and from here on out, all astronomers will be known as Jim or Jim, Jim, Spock. Do you, do you want Jim. me to just list Star Trek characters? Yeah, please? well, no, I, I, I want more <laughs> a female version of Jim. Uh, Jemima. Jemima? I don't know. I just, yeah, anyway. The Jodcast with Jim, 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 Jemima, Jim, Jim, <laughs> Jemima. Jim, Jemima. Jim, 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 Anyway, um, <laughs> now that we've completely derailed ourselves, uh, let us move on then to the night sky. All this circularly polarised light has made me want to go and look through a telescope with my eyes, which can't see circularly polarised light because I'm not a mantis shrimp. However, if you are a mantis shrimp and you want to try and see what is in the night sky, uh, you can listen right now to Ian Morrison with this month's night sky. If you're not a mantis shrimp... Have a listen anyway, because you can still see things. The night sky for September 2019. Well, at least we don't have to wait up so late to see a dark sky, assuming, of course, the moon isn't too high in the sky. The three constellations, Lyra with Vega, Cygnus with Deneb, and Aquila with Altair, are still visible high up, towards slightly towards the southwest. Those three stars make up what's called a summer triangle, but as it gets darker earlier in the evening, it's actually still visible well into the late autumn. And as I've often said, if with binoculars you start at Altair, the lowest of the three, and work your way up towards Vega, about a third of the way you might come across a nice little asterism, formerly Brocky's Cluster but we all call it the coat hanger. It looks like an upside-down coat hanger. Over to the left is a rather faint, but rather sweet constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. Now moving over and rising towards the south as the evening progresses is Pegasus, the upside-down winged horse. It gives you one way of finding the nearest giant galaxy to us, Andromeda. If one starts at the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus, Pegasus, which is actually in Andromeda, it's called Alpha Rats. Go to the left one star, around a little bit to the next bright star, then fork right, 90 degrees, to another fairly bright star, and the same distance again, even with your eyes on a dark night or with binoculars, you should see a fuzzy blob, and that's the Andromeda galaxy. Now high above Andromeda is the constellation of Cassiopeia, and the three rightmost stars form a V. And that's another way to find Andromeda. Just follow the angle of the arrow and you will actually find the Andromeda galaxy. So some nice things to see in the southern sky during the month. 
Well, what about the planets? Well, we don't have a, a great uh, number of planets to see because three of them are essentially behind the sun. But the other night I observed both Jupiter and Saturn low in the south towards the southwest. Jupiter shines on the 1st of September at magnitude minus 2.2, falling a bit to minus 2 during the month. And it can be seen in the south as darkness falls. As the month progresses, its angular size drops from 39 to 36 arc seconds, but that's still pretty good. So you can see features on the surface like the great red spot and the bands, the equatorial bands. And on the night sky page, just search for night sky jodrell, I give a list of the rather few times when it's dark that the great red spot, becoming rather less great nowadays, will be facing the Earth. It's now moving eastwards again, having stopped its retrograde motion back in August. So it's moving away from Antares in Scorpius, initially lying some seven degrees up and to its left. Sadly, it's heading well towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic. So as it appears in twilight, we'll only have an elevation of around 13 degrees. With such a low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will take its toll. And as I saw the other night, you get a little bit of colour fringing. There's a device called an atmospheric dispersion corrector. You can buy for just over £100. It uses two prisms to try and compensate for the effects of the atmosphere and that would probably help you improve your view of the giant planet. Now Saturn, it crosses the meridian so it's highest in the sky but still only around 13-14 degrees at around 9pm BST as September begins. Its disk is 17.6 arc seconds across and the rings which are still nicely tilted from the line of sight span some 41 arc seconds across. And by month's end, it'll be best seen around 8pm, when lying just west of south. During the month, the brightness falls from plus 0.3 to plus 0.5, and the angular size drops to 16.9 arc seconds. Again, lying in the southwestern side of the Milky Way, it's at the lowest point of the ecliptic, and sadly it will take some years before it rises up to higher elevations. But I could suggest that you travel down to Australia, New Zealand or South Africa when both Saturn and Jupiter are very high in the sky. Mercury passes behind the Sun and that's called superior conjunction on the night of September the 3rd, 4th so will not be visible this month. Likewise, Mars, which passes behind the Sun on September the 2nd lies too close to the Sun to be visible. We'll have to wait until about the end of October to spot it in the pre-dawn sky at the start of its next apparition. Though Venus went behind the sun on the 14th of August, sadly by month's end it will be setting in the west-southwest about 30 minutes after sunset, but will be very difficult to see due to the fact that the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon, so Venus will have a very low elevation. You might well need binoculars to spot it, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Well, finally, a few highlights. Well, I've mentioned Saturn, and on the night sky page it talks quite a bit about Saturn. It rotates quickly with a day of just ten and a half hours, so it bulges slightly, appears a little squashed. Like Jupiter, it does show belts, 
but their colours are muted in comparison. And the thing that makes Saturn stand out, of course, is its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, easily seen in a small telescope, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division. But lying within ring B, and far less bright and difficult to spot, is a C or crepe ring. Now, on the night sky page, I give little charts to find some of the nice things to see in the sky. I've mentioned the globular cluster in Hercules M13 and the double-double in Lyra. Two stars which with binoculars appear as a double star, but with a telescope under good seeing, each of those two stars is itself a double. Later in September is a good time to look high in the southeast towards the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus. Just into the border of Perseus is a rather lovely pair of clusters called the double cluster. Little smudge, perhaps with your anelid eye, or with binoculars or a small telescope, can look very pretty. And then down in Perseus is the star Algol, called the Demon Star. It's an eclipsing binary system. Now, normally, the pair has a steady magnitude of plus 2.2. But every 2.86 days, this briefly drops to magnitude plus 3.4. Two times when you might just spot that in universal time are on the 12th at 2343 and the 15th at 2031. It is a month, given a smallish or medium-sized telescope, to find Neptune. On the nights of the 5th to the 9th is a great time to look for it, as it's very close to the 4th magnitude star Phi Aquarii. There's a star chart on the night sky page. With a magnitude of 7.8, large binoculars or a small telescope will be required to spot it. A medium aperture telescope will reveal Neptune's disk, showing a hint of blue-grey. And with such a telescope, you might also be able to spot its 14th magnitude moon, Triton. And on the night of the 5th-6th of September, it lies just 13 arc seconds from Phi Aquarii. So if you can find that star, you should be able to spot Neptune. On September the 9th, you'll find Jupiter quite close towards the moon, a day after first quarter. And I usually mention a couple of objects or an object or so on the moon, and a good night to observe two great lunar craters is the night or the evening of September the 8th, because the Terminator lies close to them, and it makes all the details show up much better. Tycho is towards the bottom of the moon in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands, it's a relatively young crater, which is about 100 million years old, has a diameter of 85 kilometres, and is nearly 5 kilometres deep. Copernicus, on the other hand, is much older, at about 800 million years old. It lies in the eastern Oceanus Procolarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. It's 93 kilometres wide, and nearly 4 kilometres deep, and is a classic terrace crater, with a telescope, you can actually see the walls stepping down like a telescope. With a telescope, you can actually see the walls stepping down like a terrace. And both, of course, can be seen with reasonable-sized binoculars.
So I do hope, now with darker skies and hopefully some clear skies, we haven't had many of those in August, I must say, you'll have a chance to have a look at our lovely Northern Hemisphere sky. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesk with the night sky where you are. from New Zealand. Hi everyone. We're here at Space Place at Cat Observatory holding galactic conversations from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favorite place to be, with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Liske. Space Place is our historical astronomy icon here in New Zealand we are located right at the heart of our capital city. And we're so lucky to be among the capital cities in the world from where you can still see the Milky Way. And we're bringing you the night sky in September along with a special guest, Alina. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm Alina. I'm from Almaty, Kazakhstan, and I'm visiting New Zealand on the Watson Fellowship. I'm studying around astronomy around the world and how it inspires everyone and why people like to look at the night sky. That's awesome that you're with us. Did you know that on the 23rd of September, in the Northern Hemisphere, the seasons change, we're here in New Zealand on the 1st of September that it becomes spring and we say goodbye to winter. That's because in the southern hemisphere we've got a heap more ocean than land. And did you also know that you can spot more than four planets in the sky in September? Wow. Prepare your telescopes if you don't have telescopes. Join us at Space Place at Cut Observatory where we have telescope viewings every Tuesday, Friday and Saturday nights clear skies. Or if you missed Sam's course, Telescope 101, we will have another Telescope 101 course in December. Or prepare your binoculars. A little bit about September. Uh, so September comes from the Latin word septum, which means seven. This is because in the old Roman calendar, it was the seventh month rather than the ninth as it is today. The old Roman calendar used to only have 10 months until Julius Caesar introduced a new Julian calendar with 12 months. Which he named after himself. <laughs> September has 30 days and marks the autumn season in the Northern Hemisphere and spring in the southern hemisphere. This is the time of harvest and when many schools start their new school year in the northern hemisphere. Here in New Zealand, it is the month when we celebrate the September equinox, when the day is equal to the night. What's the sun up to? Sun rises at 6.47am on the first day of September and earlier and earlier every day all through the month. And on the 28th of September, it rises at one minute past six. However, the clock will shift by one hour so on the 30th of September, it will rise at 6.57 a.m. Wow. The sun sets at 5.55 p.m. on the 1st of September, and later and later until it sets at 7.24 p.m. on the 30th of September. The days are getting longer. Finally. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we're not really happy about that because we have shorter nights, so then we don't get to see as many stars as That's we right. did in the winter months. But we can guarantee we'll get a few 
lots of cold EMS still. Right, which will keep us even more inside the house. Yes. <laughs> September 23rd marks the September equinox. Here in New Zealand is known as the vernal equinox. And that's when... Spring's already begun. So we can get ready for warmer and longer days, I wish, as you just said. On the equinox, the day and night are roughly the same length. The word equinox comes from Latin words equal and nox is night. As the month goes, the days will be longer than the nights until we reach summer solstice, when Sam is going to teach his... uh, other Telescope 101 course. The equinoxes occur only twice per year, so this is a very special astronomical event of the year and you experience it every September. In September, the Sun transits the first the zodiacal constellation of Leo and then moves into Virgo on the 17th of September where it stays until October the 31st. The zodiacal constellations are those stars visible behind the plane of our solar system, about 8 degrees each side of the ecliptic. This is why we say they form a band in the sky called the zodiacal band. Since the sun is transiting both the space we call Leo and Virgo, it means we cannot see the stars in these constellations because they are behind the sun. So don't look through the sun. You'll go blind. Unless... You've got a solar telescope and it's well maintained and you know it is in tip-top condition. But then you can look at the sun. What if it isn't? Well, then don't look through it because you'll go blind. Okay. So the sun in Virgo means only only one thing. Opposite the sun, that's 180 degrees on the other side of the zodiacal band, is Pisces. Pisces will rise just after sunset and will be visible all night long. In September, the constellation of Scorpius is the fish hook of Maui that drags the Milky Way down from the sky here in Aotearoa. And we still get to admire the amazing galactic center and the Milky Way Kiwi inside it. We'll talk about Scorpius in a moment. Uh, many cultures and languages have various names for the Milky Way. In Kazakh, the Milky Way is called Kusrola, meaning the bird's road. In addition to the Milky Way, if you're stargazing from somewhere with very dark skies, you can spot what is called a zodiacal light. It's a cone-shaped light that stretches from low on the horizon along the ecliptic. The ecliptic marks the plane of our solar system bearing the zodiacal constellations. The ecliptic is a great circle in the celestial sphere representing the sun's apparent path during the year. So cold because lunar and solar eclipses can only occur when the moon crosses it. The zodiacal light is the light that we see reflected from dust and ice particles in the plane of our own solar system. How cool is that? So, in the sky, we can see both the galaxy that we inhabit and the solar system, two completely different scales. Yeah, it's amazing. This month, you can see many planets, both with just your naked eye and with the help of telescopes or binoculars. We continue to see Jupiter near the constellation of Scorpius throughout the month of September in the evening sky. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system and mostly consists of gas. It takes Jupiter about 12 years to make its way around the sun, so coincidentally, we can see Jupiter in in different zodiacal signs around the ecliptic each year. Next year, look out for this planet near the constellation Sagittarius. That's why uh, in the Chinese zodiac, each sign lasts for a year. It was based on Jupiter's observations. Some Kazakh books say that Jupiter used to be named Yesek Kurgan, which translates as literally someone who killed the donkeys. No. And this was based on a legend where the merchants had to 
uh, move the cattle from one village to another and they had to do it when Venus rose in the morning sky. However, they've mistaken Jupiter for Venus and they left too early, so their journey was too long and all the donkeys died. But some people don't believe that could be the sort of explanation or the name for Jupiter, so they think that Jupiter actually means Yeskakaran, which means the ancient star. Mm. Wow, so must be a lot of donkeys in, uh, or maybe not donkeys anymore. Wow, they yeah. <laughs> they're gone. Yeah. Saturn. We can also enjoy the view of Saturn this month again. Near Sagittarius, Saturn, with its magnificent rings, continues to grace us with its presence. You can easily see the rings through a telescope here at Space Lace. But unfortunately, you cannot discern the rings with just your eyes. And Galileo Galilei tried to look at uh, those rings with a telescope. He thought he saw ears on poor Saturn. It turns out it was rings, which look a whole lot better. Other planets in our solar system have rings. Saturn's rings are very bright for us to see. They're not going to be there for too long. They're going to be gone in about 300,000 years or so, I heard. In place, Mars will have rings because one of Mars's moons will kind of like come and smash into the planet. And also, it is believed that Neptune will be another planet that will have rings and both these planets will destroy their moons to do so. And of course, Jupiter has rings, but you can't see them unless you've got a special infrared camera. You can also catch a view of the planet Venus just after the sun sets later in the month. Venus is often referred to as the evening or morning star because it can be seen just before sunrise and after sunset near the sun. Ancient Kazakh nomads called the evening appearance of Venus the shepherd star because its appearance coincided with when the cattle needed to be driven home. On the other hand, the morning Venus was called Chopin and it was associated with a young woman and the foremother of the Kazakhs. Venus is also joined by Mercury in September, although much fainter. You can see Mercury paired close with Venus later in September, also right following sunset. Mercury is the closest planet to the Sun in our solar system and can be difficult to observe, but it's possible if you time it right. It's actually quite bright, so it's quite not too bad to see. You've just got to know where to look. Interestingly, Mercury is the closest planet to Earth on average. Because it's so close to the sun. You would think it would be Mars. Yeah. Or Venus, actually. But most of the time, those ones are like the other side of the sun. Right. Yeah. There's a little trick. So Venus is the next close planet, too. Yeah, yeah. Or Venus is, theoretically, when they're very close, the closest planet to Mm. Earth. In the late evening and morning sky, you can see the farthest planet from the sun in the solar system, Neptune, on the eastern skies this month. Don't try looking for it with your naked eye as it is the only planet in our solar system not visible to the naked eye. But with some help from telescopes or binoculars, you can see this ice giant planet, and it will look like a bluish dot. Quite a delight to see. Though I imagine you wouldn't be able to see Uranus that easy, would you? Well, um, we're actually asked this question every single day at Carter Observatory. and um, Probably because it sounds funny more than interest in the planet. Yeah, well, this is another yet another planet with rings. And its name is derived from the Greek word for heavens or starry sky, Uranus. It has, it's actually an amazing planet if you look at it. it. First of all, it's got this beautiful aquamarine color. And it wheels around the solar system like a bicycle wheel. They should have stuck with George, though. George, yeah. Then we wouldn't have had all of those jokes. The first name (laughs) of planet Uranus was George. As Alina said, it would take a whole separate podcast to talk about Uranus. 
Yep, it's quite a remarkable planet, but we only have so much time. So I just recommend looking out for it yourself and seeing this planet and thinking of all the unique features that it has. Scorpius, Centaurus, and the Saturn Cross. This time of the year, as we said before, in Aotearoa, the Maori name for Scorpius is Temata wa Maui, the fish hook of Maui that drags the Milky Way from the sky all night long. The constellation Scorpius has a magnificent red supergiant star Antares. It's really impossible to miss on a clear night. It has a very reddish look. And it looks just like the planet Mars, actually, if you've seen Mars before. In fact, its name is derived from Greek, meaning rival to Aries, Aries being the Greek reference to the god Mars. South of Scorpius, you can find the constellation of Centaurus, a creature that is half human and half horse in Greek mythology. Although the constellation itself is more difficult to discern, it contains two very well-known star systems in the southern hemisphere, Alpha and Beta Centauri. Alpha Centauri is the closest star system to Earth. It's only about 4.37 light years away. So it takes light 4.37 years to reach it, or that long for the light from there to come here. As a reference, it takes about 8 minutes for light to reach us from the Sun. It's a triple star system. There was an exoplanet discovered orbiting Proxima Centauri, one of the three stars in this system. And Proxima Centauri is actually the closest star to our solar system, and it's a red dwarf, and it has a magnitude of 11, which means that we can actually see Proxima Centauri with a telescope. That's right, just not with your eye. Well, with your eye through a telescope, yes. Alpha and Beta Centauri can be used as pointers to what is arguably the most well-known constellation in the Southern Hemisphere, the Southern Cross or Crux. It is actually on the New Zealand flag, if you haven't noticed yet. It's seen year-round in New Zealand, which naturally brings us to the next part of our discussion, the circumpolar objects in New Zealand. What does that mean, circumpolar objects? Well, circumpolar objects are objects that rotate around the celestial pole. These objects are above the horizon at all times in a given latitude. For instance, Cassiopeia is circumpolar from Europe, but here in Wellington we can't even see it. It's hidden by the Earth. We could if Earth would have been transparent, but it's not. But it's not. Hmm. Well, suppose if we had a really high, high tower, you might, that went sort of into orbit. Anyway, here on the other hand, we have the are Southern Cross. Are you talking Cross. about the um, space elevator? Yeah. We had a space elevator, maybe we could see Cassiopeia. But anyway, here on the other hand, we're in the Southern Cross. That's our circumpolar um, object with the pointers that are also circumpolar. The Diamond Cross and the False Cross are also circumpolar, and Canopus and Arcana are also circumpolar as well. The same for the Magellanic Clouds, Omega Centauri, 47 Tucani, the Jewel Box, the Southern Pleiades, Gem Cluster, and Omicron Aurum. Being circumpolar, it means that they turn around once every 23 hours and 56 minutes. That's why they're always somewhere else in the sky. If you look at them. In September, in the evenings, you will find the Saturn Cross in the southwestern part of the sky. So just after sunset, it's kind of like in the three o'clock position, heading down, followed by the pointers in the circumpolar zone. Canopus would be at the same time grazing the southern horizon. And because we have so many hills here in Wellington, would be hard to see. You have to wait a few hours for it to come back up. And Akinar and the two Magellanic clouds at sunset would be in the southeastern part of the sky. Bright stars? Okay, so next up, we're, um, what are some bright stars near the ecliptic? Very close to the ecliptic are Spica 
in Virgo early in the month. Spica means the head of grain from Latin, actually, and it's the grain that the Virgo constellation is holding. We can also see stars Zubanel Ganubi and Zubanel Shamali in Libra. Well done! And you're the this only is other, our test. You're the only other person on the planet that can pronounce it. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> and we can see Nunki in Sagittarius and um, the ecliptic intersects the Milky Way in Scorpius. So the stars of the Milky Way are starting from the center of the galaxy, going north, uh, Shola, and the stinger, which is the stinger of Scorpius. Atria in the Terangulum Australe. Why are you putting all these ones on we can't even pronounce? Well, yeah, I mean, we have to. You know. Right, other bright stars. In the north, we can see the bright star Altair in Aquila, the constellation of the Eagle, the triangle shaped constellation in the northeastern skies. Canopus, of course, is there, the brightest star in the southern hemisphere, continues to shine bright and can be seen near the horizon in the southern skies. And, of course, as our listeners can hear, it absolutely doesn't matter how we pronounce the stars because their names were invented very, very long time ago, so we don't even know what these people meant. Yeah, and they probably weren't their greatest spelling. And you can make your own constellations if you want. This is what we've learned here. Hmm. Right, other stuff in the sky. There's uh, dark patches. We talk about those. Mickey wakey wee. That's right. The other famous dark patch is Milky the coal sack, <laughs> other than the Milky Way Kiwi, <laughs> is the coal sack near the Southern Cross. The coal sack is also known as a flounder, which is the Maori name for it. Indeed, if you find a truly dark sky, you will see the resemblance. You really can see it. You you, can. You've got to have a dark sky. Yeah. However, talking about naming objects in the sky, the name of coal sack is also very appropriate as a dark patch made of the interstellar dust matter that's inside the uh, or near the jewel box or the Kappa Crucis cluster NGC 4755 so is that made of coal? Hmm? the interstellar medium is it made of coal? yeah because it's a sack of coal it's actually quite a wee way from the jewel box so So it's behind um, in front of the jewel box no 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 it's actually if you look at um, the jewel box angular distance it's, it's actually a little away from it hmm. yeah. other deep sky objects some of these uh, deep sky objects that you can point with a telescope butterfly cluster or M6 an open cluster in the constellation of Scorpius wishing well um, open cluster in Carina and Saturn Pinwell galaxy in Hydra and actually we looked at some of these objects with the telescope in the last month so Alina Tell us about your research and tell us what are you doing in New Zealand? I guess the project that I'm pursuing here on the fellowship is sort of was inspired by the question of why should we look at the sky, even perhaps not always for practical reasons, but more so as a hobby or um, what kind of benefits it has to people. So this year I'll be traveling around and meeting with people that work at different observatories, planetariums, meeting with different astronomical societies and just seeing what inspires and interests people about astronomy and I guess seeing how it also has connection to I guess the history of the place and um, the connection, the personal connection that people may have with the stars and what kind of benefits it can bring um, to others. This is such an amazing project and you've chosen to, to do this for your career. Yes, so I'll be pursuing like astronomy professionally and starting next fall, but this year is about me learning more the uh, personal side of astronomy and just what it means to uh, many people around the world who love to look at the stars just like me. <laughs> so everyone, if you listen to this podcast, then you're going to meet Alina. <laughs> 
host her. No, <laughs> she's amazing. She's been here with us in Wellington. What's your background? What did you study? Oh, so in university I studied astronomy and physics, and also actually classics. So some of, I guess,、uh, ancient Greek classes too. And yeah, <laughs> just finished my、uh, undergraduate degree in.、Maine. So is that classical studies? Do they help you with the astronomy and with the communication part of it, or?、Um, I think it was mostly for my own. Well, I think they just help me be like a better learner because, like, when you learn languages, I think you learn a lot of the useful skills. So not directly applicable to astronomy, but、um, it was partially inspired by astronomy because so many Greek、uh, names that we use in astronomy even today and all the constellations come from there. So. Yeah. What's the sky in Kazakhstan like? Oh, to be honest, to, like to this day, it's like one of the most beautiful skies I've seen.、It、was probably on a train ride like across Kazakhstan it, because I think at least like the parts that I was passing on the train were、um, not like very densely populated. And I remember like looking out the window and just seeing like really purple and like very like. Sort of bulging stars and the Orion, and just looking out of the, of the chain. But I don't go stargazing very often at home, just because I live in the city. But you know, moments like that I remember because it's like very, very clear if you go out into the countryside. And maybe I'll do that once I'm back home. <laughs> have you have you been to Star City? Where they launch the?、Um, no, I actually haven't been. I've been planning to, and yeah, year after year, I, you know, I study or have like internships in the summer or something, and never have enough time to visit. The,、yeah. But that's the goal, I guess, for the next time that I'm back home is definitely to visit it. Cool, yeah, it would be really exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, what, what made you study astronomy out of everything? I think well, it's definitely like the big questions. I kind of got into astronomy more through like my early interest in math and then physics, and then I wanted the more sort of bigger picture questions, and that led to astronomy. And also, I grew up, you know, hearing about Yuri Gagarin, who was the first man in space. And even though he wasn't really、like、an astronomer, he was an astronaut. That kind of inspired some thoughts about something related to outer space. <laughs> So yeah, that's how it came out to be, and、um, I think actually I love to hear how other people get become interested. Like some people do it through stargazing, or you know, like me through physics or some some other ways. So it's always curious to hear how people like want to study astronomy. So that's going to be part of your project. That is part of my project too. Well,、uh, yeah, I found out that when talking to a lot of people and asking questions, that it's really interesting to find out how they got even interested in astronomy in the first place. So yeah. I think your project is amazing to travel the world and go to planetaria, to observatories, and talk to people about what moves them in the stars. And it, it's、yeah. a fantastic, it's a fantastic opportunity that you created for yourself because you put your hand up to do this、mm-hmm. research, right? Yeah, I mean, I really hope that through my travels, I guess I can inspire others to sort of, you know, stop and look at the stars, and maybe even if you live in the city, to. Sort of have this desire to reconnect to maybe environment more, and I think it has a lot of good benefits to happiness or outlook on life. So yeah, it piques curiosity of a lot of people, and hopefully, like my travels can inspire others as well. Awesome. Well, wonderful. We wish you very wonderful, awesome travels. How do you say this in English? We wish you wonderful, awesome, magical travels. <laughs> magical travels. <laughs> Thank you. Around the world.、Uh, I've enjoyed my time in New Zealand a lot, and yeah, I hope every place is just as you know welcoming as it has been here. 
I want to also thank、uh, Zira Nara's Bible for all the information about the Kazakh mythology in astronomy. Well, thank you, and we hope we keep in touch, and maybe we can have、yes, you、sure. yeah, back in our show and <laughs> tell us about what you've seen on all those、uh, beautiful skies around the world. And until next time, from Wellington here in New Zealand, Alina and Haritina and Samuel Whiskey, we wish you a fantastic September and clear skies. Always, always clear, clear skies. skies. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Stars in small but representative regions of the sky, we find that the total number of stars in the Milky Way is about 400 billion. It's a lot of stars. Tina and Sam, and now onto the feedback. We, yeah, we haven't got any feedback,、um, so please do do write to us.、Uh, we like to know that you're there,、um, and we also like to know what you think.、Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so via a number of different assorted ways, depending on what your favourite method of technology is. Um, so you can contact us through the website at www.jodcast.net, Twitter at twitter.com/jodcast, Facebook at facebook.com/jodcast, YouTube at youtube.com/jodcast, Flickr at flickr.com/groups/jodcast, and don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Please send us post. We really like your postcards and various other. Postage items. We we are slowly decorating the broadcast studio. With,、uh, we might add things. I think we should probably post another picture of what it looks like in here. It、um, is way nicer in here. It's so much nicer in here than it was when in... we moved in, and also when we were in the cupboard. Yeah.、Um, I almost forgot about the cupboard. Yeah. Oh、uh, well, like, like we've got enough space that we can like move. Yeah. And not walk into each other. It's great. Anyway,、um, it's your continued listening. That has meant that we were able to justify being given a room. So thank you for housing us. Speaking of thanks. Speaking of thanks,、uh, this is the end of the uh, episode. Um, so thank you to Fabio Antonini for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Tian Bizadenhoit, and Bin Yu. The producer was Michael Wright. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, Jordan. Jordan!